Welcome, welcome, guys. We are back for another episode of The Lock-In. It's going to be a very special one, I warn you, ahead of time. We have a very, very special guest. I know we say that every time, but this time we actually do have a really, really special guest. I've got to say, he's not going to be here for the beginning of the show, but he is going to completely dominate the second half or maybe even the second two-thirds. So do not go away. Hold on to your hats. Doug Pogue will be here later on. Before we welcome Doug to the show. We do want to talk about the stories of the day, the gossip, if you like. Darrow Kearney, welcome. Uh, thanks, David. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm kind of disappointed. I thought the very special guest was me, but now you're saying it's, it's this other guy who, just, who hasn't even showed up yet. Well, that's an excellent point. We always have a special guest because you're always here, Darrow. That's very fair to say. Um, the first story this week, and it's a controversial one. Um, many of you out there will be aware that there is a match, another grudge match, or maybe there's not so much grudge to this one, but another fun heads-up duel is in the works between Landon Tice, young up-and-coming poker player, and Bill Perkins, billionaire with lots of money and some poker skills, has got to be said, who fancies maybe improving his heads-up game uh, through the course of maybe a challenge of the the nature of the the Polk Dean Eggs one we've seen recently, but also um, m- maybe just kind of a willing donator. He's that kind of guy. He's sometimes very generous to members of the poker community. Um, we're very much looking forward to that challenge, uh, which has a sort of a handicap idea on it. Uh, I, I think there, it's fair to say um, Landon will have to overcome a decent deficit in number of big blinds per hundred. But before they get started, there's already been a bit of extra attention given to that challenge by virtue of the fact that Poker Shares and its owner, Mike McDonald, are in the headlines right now after a Terence Chan tweet. Uh, Darren, I'm going to read this one out, not maybe in its entirety, it was quite long, but I'm really keen to get your take on it. This is a tweet storm, he says, I never thought I'd write and I'm disappointed I had to write it. In it, I'm going to call out Poker Shares and Mike McDonald, a site and a person I've been a fan of. According to Terence, he was scrolling through Twitter uh, just a few days ago when he thought he spotted a posting from Poker Shares that looked like it offered a very nice plus EV wager, namely an almost even money line on that challenge I just mentioned between Bill and Landon. Uh, Terence fired a max bet on Landon. The line didn't move, so he bet again and again when it didn't move. So later on, Poker Share Support emailed him to say it is a 1k max bet, so we're cancelling the other two tickets, which Terence, of course, said was reasonable. Later again, Terence got an email from Poker Shares clarifying the market. The price on the match included the $720,000 handicap, the one I mentioned there a moment ago. Tice would need to win more than $720,000 in the challenge in order to be graded as the winner. Should you have placed your bet with the understanding of the above, you have tw- without the understanding of the above, pardon me, you have 24 hours to cancel that bet by responding to this email the site wrote to Terence. Almost immediately, Terence got a private message from Mike McDonald and a conversation ensued beginning with the words, are you dumb? Dara, I certainly don't think Terence is dumb, but was he a bit naive here? Um, to be honest, I don't really know. I mean, Terence seems to be suggesting that he didn't realise that there was this sort of nine big blinds per hundred line. Um I find that kind of difficult to believe because, I mean, even I was aware of it and I don't pay very much attention to Twitter. I have to admit, I pretty much only read tweets that, are t- that, that tag me by name. But even I was aware that there was, I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious that if Bill Perkins, you know, very successful businessman, 
decent recreational player but not top class is taking on the bright new hope of uh, American poker Landon Tice even in a format that he's not a specialist in heads up you have to assume that Landon is going to be a strong favorite and if he's not a strong favorite there must be some sort of reason around that in in, in terms of a handicap or whatever so I'm, I'm kind of surprised if it is genuinely the case that Terence wasn't aware of this, um, of, of, of the details around the thing. And, and, and if he wasn't, and if he genuinely thought they were saying he, Landon was only even money on an even playing pitch against um, Bill, then that, 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 that perhaps is naivety. I mean, I have a lot of respect for both guys. I have huge respect for Terence um, and I have massive respect for Mike. I think they've both been very positive uh people in the poker world one thing i would say is that from what i understand these guys have been friends for a long time and you, you and i david know the friends communicate differently we you know i i call you dumb probably 10 times a day and fat 20 times a day and if that was exposed on twitter i might not look particularly good um so you know i think it's it, it's it, it's sad because the guys are friends and we do hold our friends to higher standards than than, than other people when um i also think the pandemic is sort of uh causing everybody to be a little bit more easily triggered a little bit more touchy and we have seen a lot more of these types of arguments i think twitter is probably the absolute worst place to have it because as soon as you say something everybody else piles in as well and so people people sort of choose a side and uh there's it's it's very polarizing so um yeah i i i think maybe everybody just needs to take a chill pill here realize that these are this is essentially between the two guys themselves, um, even though it has been aired in Twitter. Just because something is on Twitter doesn't mean that everybody has to weigh in with their opinion. You know, I think the pandemic has produced a new type of person, which I call opinion pros. They have an they have an opinion on absolutely everything, and uh, they, they they feel the need to to to, uh, to state it publicly and argue their argue the side. But this is really between the two guys. I feel very seen by that last comment, i got to say, Dara. Not only am I dumb, fat, but you also targeted me in that last bit too. I <laughs> what you did there. Um, I did tweet, and I can't even believe, like, as if you had planned this, I did tweet what I thought of what was going on. And to, I be said, fair, to be fair, David, before you read your tweet, um, you essentially did, which I think you, 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 you tried to play a sort of a peacemaker de-escalation mode. And I think we definitely need more of that instead of people just immediately shouting to either one or the other guy, you're obviously an angle shooter. You're an absolutely horrible human being, or you're an absolute douchebag for talking to your friend like that, that, that way. I think uh, if there were more people willing to act as peacemakers, that would be good too. Yeah. And actually Olivier Bousquet said something very similar and actually Olivier uh, also knows Terence quite well. Uh, I, I've known him a little bit over the, particularly in the last few months, I'd say I did have a few chats with him about this. He, he sort of, was in a funny place where he was going to regret it if he didn't say it and he now sort of regrets saying it and I think it's just a kind of a, a funny situation where it was going to uh, weigh heavy on him either way what I did say in, in my own tweet is I, I said I think Terence acted in good faith I think Mike McDonald felt like he was being angled and consequently adopted it's fair to say an unprofessional tone uh, I think poker shares made a mistake but I also think they're within their rights to cancel a bet like that uh, but maybe they should have honoured the bet it, it's not a huge skin off their nose they probably could have got some good publicity out of it and is it really important to stamp down on every situation where you feel like you're not getting the best of it in that line of business I'm not sure perhaps he's done some good he's sort of put a line out there saying don't fuck with me and, you know you're not going to get away with any shit with poker shares but then on the other side maybe that's not the public appearance you want to have and maybe you want to be seen as you know a, a gambling company willing to 
take a gamble and maybe get the worst of it once in a while. The one thing I was very convinced of now, uh, similar to what you said there, is that this is all actually very sad and avoidable and, and, and probably would be left de-escalated and, and, and hopefully, you know, not talked about too much more. Yeah, which is why we're covering it, of course. Um, <laughs> it's not but, lost on anyone, I'm sure. Yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, this is this is um, two nice guys. Uh, and I mean, coming back to the whole pandemic thing, and I'm not just pointing figures out of the world. I definitely responded more tetchily to people on occasion be, just by being cooped up in my house for nine months. You don't get to see your friends uh, at these regular social events and, you know, did these events tend to be de-escalating things. If, 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 if uh, you know, if you're getting, if, if your frustration that I call you fat every day is gradually building up over time, we need that sort of once every two months where we come to thing and I buy you a pint and say, you know, you do realize I'm only joking, David, even though yeah. you are. And I noticed you've been in the gym recently because you said that to me. Uh, I don't remember you saying, I've been in the gym for a month, Darren. It's not obvious. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's obviously you, you, you're, you're looking very buff these days. Um, so, <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a lot easier to forget to do that stuff uh, when you're not actually seeing the person face to face. And I think I think when the world goes back to somewhat normal, a lot of these things will sort of settle down and get resolved as well. And it, it will be a more peaceful place. But then, I mean, the other aspect is people love popcorn and everybody loves weighing in on, on, on this and giving, you know, what their side is. And maybe the other people like feeling briefly superior to both Terence and Mike, who are wonderful human beings, uh, to say, oh, look at these ages fighting, uh, fighting it out on Twitter. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe that has some social function as well. Mm, indeed. Well, I know, stressed out from it all, after maybe a day of being the focus of Twitter, Terence turned off his phone. He said, I'm going to step away from the conversation for a little while. I spent the morning doing a lousy job parenting and paying more attention to people on the internet saying mean things about me than being attentive to my kid. And that's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, unfortunately, and I, 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 this again, I suppose in the spirit of maybe not wanting to keep things going, I should maybe leave this, but I was really disappointed by the next comment that Mike made, which was that he said, if I'm ever caught as a liar stroke scammer, I plan to take a nice break from the public eye to focus on my parenting and philanthropy. And, you know, maybe that's a joke. I don't know. It seems quite dickish. And I, I do hope, as you said, Dara, that maybe if they got on the phone to each other even now, or if they got to meet in person, hopefully Terence wouldn't choke him out because obviously an MMA fighter, uh, they, they could maybe have a conversation and a beer and, and settle things. Um, next up, I'm going to... Actually, before you move on okay, to that, okay. I, would, I would make one final point, which was in the early days of the internet when sort of corporate internet culture was being uh, debated and how people should respond. I remember one of the big companies I worked for at the IBM, they, they came up with these guidelines. And one of their things was... Uh, humor and tone don't translate on the internet when you're dealing with people um, and therefore you should just avoid humor uh, avoid m making jokes for that reason now that does lead for a very boring situation but I think this is a case where Mike might have thought he was making you know an obvious joking tone maybe trying to diffuse the situation actually made it a lot worse because people people won't pick up on 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 perceived tone so you just have to be generally careful when you communicate with people online they they, they won't necessarily uh, understand your tone 
Great point. Great point. I'm glad you stopped me from moving to our next topic uh, to, to, to point that out. But our next topic is up now, and it is the Unibet Online Series, the 11th edition of our signature festival. The US kicks off on the 26th of February and will run until the 21st of March. The final weekend will, of course, be hosting the Unibet Open Online. The Sunday satellites on Unibet Poker are smashing their guarantees right now. So do get in there. It looks like it's going to be a big field. Two interesting stats, Dara, about the Unibet Open in 2020. One, all four were won by Irish slash Ireland-based players. So answer me this. Why are we the greatest poker nation in Europe? Um, Because the random number generator on Unibet clearly favours the Irish (laughs) server location. Uh, I don't know. I mean, extrapolating from four individual instances of tournaments to sort of... uh, the 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 wild world of poker is maybe a little bit foolhardy, but um, I mean I do think genuinely that Ireland does tend to punch above its weight for our numbers. Uh, I was talking to an American recently about Ireland, and I and we we got onto population, and I said like we have five million people, and they were like what five million people that's absolutely nothing how come you guys make so much noise on the world stage um i think when you look across the board like we do definitely punch above our weight in the arts and sports um and arguably in poker too um in in term in terms of the number of at least decent pro level players that we produce um i think a lot of that has to do with our history and our culture our culture um similar to i mean when you look at america for example one thing which always stands out is that people of uh, the jewish faith tend to overperform in every area and i think irish and jewish culture are very similar in that they um they 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 emphasize education and they emphasize sort of self-improvement and i think that's one of the reasons that bleeds over into poker in a certain way as well and they have mothers who are very good at guilt tripping. Uh, oh yeah, they have mothers who make sure that you, do your home, that you, that you get your homework done and you don't uh, you don't you don't waste your time on, on too much diversion. <laughs> good. So, well, before I move on to the second point, I want to make it clear. Dara was joking there. I know we maybe sometimes on the internet people don't know when people are joking. Dara was definitely joking about that random number generator. Please do not uh, send in your emails. Uh, but if you do, send them to Andy Patton. He'd love to hear about it uh, at Unibet Poker. Um, the second one is, can our very good friend, Porrick O'Neill, the winner of the last two events, go back to back to back? A stupendous achievement if he could do it. And if he does, are we obliged to fire Eni and hire Smidge? Uh, well, to the first part of your question, um, Mike Brady said recently on, on the on the Poke DNX Challenge that Poke is the wrong man to ask about future sporting events because he'll always just go with the line. You know, the favourite's most likely to win and therefore that's the person he'll say will win. I'll, I'm going to take the same line on Smidge and say that Smidge has about the chance that a player of his skill level has, which is presumably one out of 200 times maybe he wins the tournament. So we'll we'll have our first ever back-to-back-to-back winner. Um, in terms of uh, replacing Ian, I mean, we all know that should have happened years ago. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, Ian has... Ha, has built up a very popular following uh and to be fair dean he's he, he's playing a lot better these days too um, <laughs> i don't know and to be fair to be fair and, yeah and he's you know he, i mean ian is, is is good fun he's he's very different energy from us and i think a lot of people enjoy ian uh more than uh more than us so i think he he, he you know ian has his I was going to say Legion of fans. Now that would clearly be an uh, exaggeration, but Ian has a few fans anyway, that's for sure. 
Yeah, he has he has scores of fans, maybe. Again, scores might be overstating. Let's uh, let's let's say Ian has uh, instances of fans. <laughs> well, without further ado, I want to bring in our very special guest. We welcome now to the lock-in, hot on the heels of his comprehensive victory over Daniel Negreanu, the most watched televisual poker event in recent memory. He is truck driver supremo, the man who will take your money and leave you with a handful of beefy sausage. He is Doug Polk. Doug, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for that intro. Uh, hopefully no one's getting left with too many sausages in their hand today, but uh, I do appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me. Oh, no, it is great to have you. Huge congratulations on not just winning the match, but the, the way in which you closed it out, which I think is really noteworthy. I feel like this fact is maybe a little overlooked by all the shows you've been doing recently. Um, those last 1K hands, you really turned it from a beating into a pummeling. Um, and in many ways, I think that's the difference between the two of you. And what was a massive challenge in the end, I think, could have ended up being seen a little bit more balanced. Um, with those last few sessions, you deprived Daniel of a few of the narratives I know he really craved, uh, be it winning all in with all in EV adjusted, win the second half of the challenge and beat the spread. You called out Daniel's attempts to control the narrative during the challenge. So how satisfying was it to completely deprive him of any narrative he craved? It was extremely satisfying for it to finish in that fashion, especially when you look at the way that final session went. You know, I think uh, starting out that session, I w at one point I was down 150, 175, something in that vicinity. And it, if it had ended at that point, I think I would have ended up being about a 775K winner, which would have put me almost exactly break even in the second half of the challenge, which I know was something that he was really looking to try and um, to, to pull off was to win the second half. And I actually know a lot of people that, that bet on the second half, um, both sides of that, for him to win. So, uh, you know, we, I came out of the gate. I knew we had about 1.5K hands or so to play. And... Uh, just immediately I was stuck a bunch and it looked like, yeah, this might end in the vicinity of, let's just say that I uh, had a bad session from there. You know, it, it's possible this challenge could have ended with me up 600 K. And then if all in EV was, was 250 towards him, he could say, Hey, look guys, I only lost by really, really eight or nine buy-ins. This was, this was pretty close. I won the second half. If we, if we did this again, I would win. And then I just, I just turned on the the turbo <laughs> boosters and, and just ran all the way back up to to having a uh, plus I, I don't know plus two fifty last session I think to put that grand total at something around one point two million so a very satisfying run down the stretch and and I think I think uh, that that last one K hands it was interesting because I streamed all of my cards for that so you can see every single decision I made over the course of that session I felt I played some of my best poker of the entire challenge not to say I did get lucky we we all know how lucky I can get uh, but I think I also played some really phenomenal balanced poker I think that people got to see sort of the way that uh, top players weave together the value and the bluffs sort of the different spots you might pick um, you know there was a lot of a lot of really cool hands and, and and overall I think I played maybe my best session in terms of just ability and and, and play of the challenge so it was a fitting note to end it on well, in the in the aftermath of the challenge, Twitter was a buzz. One of my favorite tweets at the end of your match was, unsurprisingly, from our former guest Melissa Burr, who said, <laughs> "On a quote, poke befriending Dean Eggs after years of relentless trolling and then beating him for over a million is a variant of Stockholm syndrome, never seen or heard of in poker before." 
I watched your appearance on that poker podcast and your past issues with Daniel do kind of feel like water under the bridge. You were quick to bat away questions that might drag you back into the old arguments. What was Daniel's most relatable characteristic once you got to know him? I think most relatable characteristic. Hmm, that's, that's a tough question. I, I haven't, I haven't thought about that. Exactly. Most relatable characteristic. Well, you know, just to kind of talk about uh, my experience with Daniel for a moment here, uh, you know, it's tough when you're put in the, in the limelight and you have to be, so you have to be willing to sort of uh, back up your play and, and your decisions and how you're doing. And so it, it's relatable when I see he takes a bad session and I just see the comments pouring in, you know, I was on the other end of that whenever I had a bad session, right? Uh, when I had that session where I lost almost 10 buy-ins for the biggest loss of the entire challenge, I saw so many people just, you know, chiming in with their opinion on how I'm supposed to play, which is, yeah, thanks guys. I, I appreciate <laughs> my, your opinions on this 200, 400 heads up match, how you would have played it. That's great to know. Uh, so I guess I, I found myself being able to relate very much to the position that he, he was put in, which is, you know, every hand is, is going to be dissected. Every hand's going to be microanalyzed and critiqued and you're going to make mistakes, right? I think a lot of the comments are obviously for people that have no idea what they're talking about, but then, you know, sometimes you make errors and when, when there's thousands or tens of thousands or, or however many people watch this challenge, there's going to be lots of comments that have validity and those are the ones that suck to read the most, right? Hey, you probably should have folded that river and you, you read it. Yeah, I probably should have, honestly, <laughs> looking back on it. Um, so I found the position that he put into very relatable for sure. That's a good answer. Um, if you're going to bet big, bet big on yourself. That was sort of your motto. You said that after the final session, you repeated it on Twitter a few days later. In poker, we can't control the cards. We can't control our opponent's actions. We can't control... We can control preparation, though. We can control our own decision-making. When Daniel agreed to this match, and others agreed to bet big with you as well, of course, it was obviously a great spot. Um, what did you do to make it the best possible spot? So when when this challenge was initially, uh, well, essentially with the moment that he accepted, I knew that I was going to have to put in the prep work to be a, a top class player, a world class player. And, you know, maybe that doesn't mean I have to be number one in the world. But the reality is, if I'm going to play these stakes, I'm going to have side bets. There's going to be all kinds of action on this. Uh, I need to do everything within my power to win. And that really means putting in the time and the hours and the effort. You know, the way that you prepare for poker has changed substantially from back when I first rose up through the stakes. When I was coming up through the stakes, you know, back in my day, uh, <laughs> basically you had to come up with stuff, you know. So I would have spreadsheets. I'd have spots. I'd have folders. I'd have Google Drive uh, uh, sheets just, you know, uh, out the wazoo, just putting together strategies for, hey, when the, the this this situation happens when the, th when the third spade hits, these are the bluff hands. And this is that number of combos of those. And this is the bluff and these are the value bets. And then I'd be, you know, trying to actually create the ratio. Okay. I have nine value combos. It's going to be four bluff combos. And so I would be putting together all of those things and I'd be doing it for myself as well as my team. So the preparation was, um, it was a little bit, uh, it was far less robust, but if you spent the time and actually cared then you could put together some balanced strategies that were, were, were going to be hard for people to deal with. And, and if they didn't spend the time uh, on the creative side of things, really trying to balance things out from a theoretical perspective, then you were going to have the solid edge. Whereas nowadays, that level of creativity, it doesn't really exist anymore. It's, hey, this is a computer and this computer is telling you this is the answer. Now, 
the good part about that is if you want to spend the time to learn, you can get very good at poker, but the bad, the dark side of it is it just takes hours. There's no, there's no way to sugarcoat this. You can't, you're not just going to magically be awesome at this. You, there's no way around it. You know, some people will be naturally better than others, but you're going to have to take hands, analyze them, look at what the result was and try and take, uh, you know, heuristics from that, that you can move, that you can apply moving forward to play uh, your top poker, uh, you know, in, in real time. So um, I, I knew that that was going to be the case when I came in. I tried to put a really good team of people in place to, to let me succeed and to help me succeed. But even then, you know, all the people that were helping me and, and the software, everything that I had, hours, you know, wake up, get a cup of coffee. Let's go. Let's learn some stuff. Let's try and perfect these ranges. Let's work on parts of my game. I know we're weak. Let's figure out new combinations for spots that I, I haven't really looked at uh, as in depth. And I just every day try and figure out new ways to make it more difficult for my opponent by playing closer to optimal. And I think, it, it, you know, the amount of time I spent in over the course of three, um, three months of prep and then three months of the challenge, by the end of it, uh, you know, you, you have some, you, you got some moves, you got some moves in your arsenal that are going to be tough for your opponent to deal with. And uh, that was the, the, the prep work that, um, you know, I, I put together for this. Well, as, as mentioned earlier, this, this re-engaged the poker world on Twitter. And I was surprised by the number of um, recreational players who were even contacting me for my opinion on how the match would go or how it was going in advance. In advance, there was quite a lot of, I would say, sort of, you know, live players who barely knew who you were and they thought, well, Negreanu is the greatest of all time. So he's obviously the favorite. So they were quite surprised by my assessment that I thought Negreanu had little or no chance. As the match went on, the narrative kind of shifted with that group of players to, well, if the whole thing had been live, um, it would have been very different. And uh, I... um, I actually got tired. I, I heard that so much. I, I started getting tired. So I took the contrary position. I said, yeah, I think it would have been different. I think Doug would have won even more. Um, and my, <laughs> so I thought, okay, well now I've made this ridiculous statement. So now I have to back it up, but actually thinking about it, I, I thought, well, Daniel had access to all the charts. He, uh, all, all, all the stuff because it was online. It, had it been in, uh, in real time, presumably he wouldn't have had the charts at the table. So he would have had to try and remember that. And I think you might've had an edge in that area. Am I completely out uh, on a limb here? Or do you think you might've actually done just as well or better live? I think it, it's not clear cut how it would have gone live. My intuition is that it would have been slightly better for Daniel just because he has played so much of his career um, you know, live. And then there is, of course, this element of uh, live reads and tells that I don't think I'm particularly strong at. Uh, I, I've mainly focused it from the defensive position, making sure I don't have tells. I've been told I have tells so many times, and then all of a sudden people make bad calls or make bad folds or whatever it is. Um, obviously, the thing is, when you play live, you're going to play such a variety of opponents. Some guys are going to make the right calls against you. You know, Lord knows you can go to YouTube and find me trying to bluff famous people and it failing. That's obviously on there. Uh, but then there's some guys that fold, right? So uh, the point of the matter is I really tried to spend my time, um, you know, balancing my my uh, demeanor um, from a defensive stance rather than looking for tells myself. You, you talk about the, you know, the basically the notes and, and charts and what you were allowed to have during the challenge, would they be there? They wouldn't be there. And I would assume I, I could do a substantially better job um, of implementing those uh, those ranges and sizes uh, in real time uh, without having them at my side. But on the other side of the coin, it's a bit hard to randomize. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to standardize some timing stuff. It's going to be um, it's going to be tough to to execute with the precision that you get online. So I, I think I think that if it was live, it probably would have been a bit better for Daniel. But I mean, this isn't going to be. If people talk about it like it would be a totally different game, it's still heads up no limit. We'd have the same stacks. We'd have the same. 
it'd be the same cars. You'd be the same spots. It would be, it's not, it's not, people talk about it like it would be a totally different game. It's still the exact same game. It's just the guys at the table in front of you rather than being um, across town for me, you know? Uh, so it's uh, well, Doug, yeah. we'd be at the about the two thousand hand mark right now. So I think that would have made you very sad. <laughs> we would not have gotten very far very fast. That's for sure. One table instead of two, and then every hand, of course, would be about you know uh, two to three times as long. So I think in the interest of time, it's also not a very realistic challenge. <laughs> well, I want to make note here. You you were quick to pay tribute to all your various um, contributors. Um, I know you did that nice tweet mentioning uh, Clicker and Frab. Um, it obviously took a village to uh, take 1.2 million from Daniel Negreanu's war chest. Um, your good friend and business partner, Ryan Fee, was on the most recent episode of our show. And we actually talked quite a bit about humility. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I was kind of trying to think about how does that relate to you? And I was thinking similar to Ryan, you fire off your shots and you like doing that, but when it comes down to it, you're very hyper aware of your weaknesses and limitations. That was very much in evidence that you sought out the team that you did. Um, you both seem to know what you don't know. And I think that's like so important in poker and actually probably something that Darren and I would, would say has kind of kept you in the game or kept us in the game as well. That just like being very aware of what's out there and what you need to do to shore up your your leaks or whatnot is so important so with that in mind uh, you know would you talk a little bit about the, the the young scandies you employed to help you retool your game from the ground up absolutely and and nothing uh nothing nothing says the face of humility like the name ryan fee that's absolutely for sure <laughs> uh but anyway no so so it, it, it's interesting when you think about when you think about uh knowing what you don't know right and the thing about poker, and I've always had this sort of approach, is when I when I make a decision, I'm confident in it and I believe in it, and I, do, I you know I make my best decision that I can. But I don't have this I was right about this hand sort of attitude afterwards. I want to run it. I want to get some feedback. I want to see what the solvers say, and if it's solver approved and it ends up being the right play, then yeah, it was the right play. But you know, you need to have this confidence in the moment to make the play you need to make but this openness afterwards to understand where you're weak and improve. And I think that you could see that in a lot of the post games where I would talk or um, Negrani would talk and a lot of mine, I said, Oh, I made mistakes here. I'm really not sure about this one spot. I, I think I made an error here. I, I, I had some really tough spots today. And then a lot of Negrani's, he said, I didn't make any mistakes today. And, and it's just, you know, I, I would say, how is that possible? I know that I, I know I had, so many mistakes, so many tough spots. This, this game is incredibly difficult. You're going to make thousands, tens of thousands of decisions over the course of this challenge. You know, you're just praying that, that you know, 400 of them are mistakes. You're not, you're not, you know, you can't hope that none are or 100 are. You're going to make mistakes, right? So um, with that in mind, I knew going into this that I had to put together a team of people that were going to really um, help me succeed. And uh, I just tried to find the, the guys that I thought uh, could do the best job of that. Uh, Frab and Clicker are just amazing poker minds. Uh, they're so young. Clicker's not. A, Clicker can't even play poker in America. He, he's not even 21 years old, you know. And this guy is probably the best heads-up player in the world. So it's yeah. it's really it's really you know wild to see these guys that can succeed at that level and are this good at, at such young ages. I think it's a byproduct of a few things. I think the first thing is if you imagine from day one you played poker, you knew about solvers and used them. Uh, or had a, uh, a coach that was using them and explaining the concepts to you. If you if you met these people right out of the gate, I think you'd have 
a sort of a leg up in the way that you view poker because you wouldn't have all of these incorrect ideas that you used for a long time that are clouding your judgment and make you think uh, in, in the incorrect way. And there's just there's a lot of different boards, a lot of different spots that I, that I think about this. Um, I think some of the four betting ranges that I used pre-flop, sometimes they use hands such as ace-jack offsuit that if you look back in the day, you would basically never really use because uh, having to four bet fold ace-jack offsuit is just you know, pretty, pretty devastating, right? It's not a good enough hand to four back call has a lot of equity. So it, intuitively, it doesn't feel like it's a cr the correct play, but it's very much solver approved to four bet fold um, uh, an allocation of ace jack offsuit. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that you block so much of the jam range, you really didn't go against the flat range, whatever else is involved here. But you know, this is this is solver approved correct poker. So you know, back in the day, we had to think about the whys. Why should I four bet? What hand should be there? What makes sense? Now it's, hey, this is the answer. And I think maybe coming up with that framework might make you a much stronger player for the long run. But these guys are also just extremely sharp. They're just really smart guys. Uh, they're playing at the highest level. They've, um, especially especially Frab, you know, put put in just countless hours uh, to to put together the correct strategies and learn and improve and constantly look for better improvements to the current strategy. So, you know, I I, I probably could have won this without putting together such a a great team of guys, but. The thing is, I didn't want to take any chances. And I was here to win. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting hearing Negreanu continually um, claim that he had made zero mistakes. It's, so, it's something I, see, I I coach players at different levels, and I actually find that the the better the player is, the more mistakes they make. Um, a lot of the a lot of the weaker players think, seem to think that they never ever make a mistake. Uh, but the big takeaway for me when listening to you talking about hands, whether it was in the post match interviews or on podcasts is how in today's game frequency is king can you elaborate on why this has become such an important part of of um, modern poker so th that's definitely true and when i look at situations how i used to think about them back in the day the way that i think about them is well how many value combos do i have here okay how many bluff combos do i have here which which bluff combos are the most uh make the most sense and, and then i would be trying to approach it from that uh from that perspective but nowadays it's a little bit different because, you know, you're going to have a good number of value combos in all your traditional lines or even some of your untraditional lines. You're, you're going to have value combos. It's more a question of how often should the value bets be taking this line? And then from the bluff perspective, which hands make the most sense as bluff candidates given your total frequency? So it's a little less precise in that you're trying to strive for this exact uh, bluff to value ratio, which is, you know, obviously nice obviously if you could do that in real time that's great but it's just not very realistic to think okay so ace jack is 72 percent pre-flop call and then it's 12 percent flop bet and then it's 19 percent turn okay that's 0.08 combos there's just not it's just not a very realistic way to actually implement the strategy so when you start to think about things just in you know is a hand pure high mid low very low or no freak uh, you can start to really put together some, uh, some, some overall strategies that are uh, well balanced. They're not going to be perfect. You are a human being, but well balanced enough to where it's very difficult for your opponent. Uh, because, yeah, they know you'll bluff and they know you'll value bet. But as long as you're in the vicinity of picking out the right bluffs, they can't really do much about it. And and I think there was a, a post game that Agranu, uh, where he made a statement that I, I thought was really kind of. Um, gave you a good insight into the, what it's like playing against me or playing against people that, that play a really balanced style, which is, you know, when this guy bets all of it, you know, he doesn't, he, people act 
like he's always bluffing me, but you know, he's not in there with napkins. You know, he, I, I call, he has it most of the time. Well, yeah, that's how it works. When you, when you jam, you mainly have it, uh, but you have a big chunk of not having it. So if I jam the river, depending on the size, I have it between 60 and 80, uh, but the rest are bluffs. So when you're in the other side of it, and I think especially when people watch this match and they see a lot of me just kind of running the ground over in different situations. Yeah, I'm bluffing there a lot, you know, and Lord knows some of the biggest pots of this challenge are me getting stacked bluffing. But most of the time I had it. So there's not there's not this easy clear cut solution. Stop. Just start calling. Well, yeah, if he starts calling in all these spots, he's going to get just trucked when I have value. And then if he starts folding in all of these and all my bluffs over realize. So it's sort of a catch it's kind of a catch 22. It's if he starts calling all the time, he loses from the Valley. If he starts folding all the time, he loses from the bluffs. And that's why he, he's his only real chance to win there is to play really great poker. And, and that's the solution. That's not publicly a fun thing to say. There weren't many comments. Why isn't the just calling with a theoretically optimal range? That wasn't a comment in the chat box anywhere. <laughs> it was, he needs to fold. He needs to call. And as humans, we love these basic, simple solutions, call more, duh, you know, or fold more. But, but the reality is, if it was that simple, then, you know, a lot of people could step in and play super high six, no limit and do great. The reality is you're going to have to pick the candidates that make the most sense in terms of blocking the value and unblocking the bluffs. And there's no shortcut around that. Well, you've been pretty honest and open about all the different software tools you use. So you, you had your Scandi team. I know you had some guys from... Uh, upswing, uh, running f frequencies, making sure Daniel was somewhat balanced as well. And obviously you had your training tools. With those training tools in mind, can you project maybe three to five years into the future and paint me a picture of the way you think high stakes poker might look from behind the scenes? That's a great question. It's so tough to say because I'm not a developer. So I don't know what this, what it will look like from a technical perspective. I think at some point it's going to be absolutely the case where you can load up some software and just play and every decision you make, it'll tell you what the big blind loss rate was. By the way, whenever you play versus trainer, it's only, you only ever look at loss rate, not win rate, because um, if, if you make perfect decisions, you have zero loss rate. So it's basically you're playing in terms of your, uh, your spread from perfect. Uh, it's a little harder in multi-handed poker because uh, GTO poker, it, it exists. I, I've talked to some game theory guys. I'm trying to, to walk on eggshells because there's some words you use or don't use that are wrong. And so I'm trying to not just say something where someone says, well, technically that's not true, Doug. But anyway, uh, basically in, in multi-handed poker, players can sort of operate in a way that allows one player at the table to win more than, than what they should. So let's say, for example, you're playing three-handed, you and another very good player. Third guy just hates the other guy, okay? He's your best friend, loves loves losing money to you. Well, he can just play in a way that siphons money from him to you. And, and if he does that, it makes optimal for that player different because now he has to factor in that he, his anytime he has a decision to make, that guy is trying to win you money. So what, what GTO poker would look like multi-handed gets a bit strange, particularly because of these inputs. But um, the point is, I, I think down the road at some point, there's going to be an, ab an ability just to, you fire up the software, you play hands, it tells you exactly what was correct, tells you exactly what your loss rate is. You practice like that, and then you play a real session, and then you can probably import the hands, it'll tell you the exact mistakes you made, and then there's kind of this back and forth practice with that, with of course some, some solver study mixed in. I imagine that it's going to get more and more like that. I think that uh, more and more allocation of your time will go to study rather than play. 
I think more and more time will go to perfecting these really uh, intricate situations versus just trying to understand the uh, general heuristics of, oh, I need to be buffing 25% here or whatever. I need to be buffing with these kinds of hands. It'll get more and more technical. And I think, I think of course, there's going to be always the threat of bots. You know, I, I think, I think long-term online poker has some real scary situations and really scary stuff to overcome, particularly cash games, because it's so easy just to set, uh, these are the stacks, you know, and then, and then play, uh, um, uh, just try and play optimal given that heads up to limit, especially, you know, I think about this challenge. I didn't think Negrande would cheat. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure he didn't think I would cheat, but we both had cameras in our rooms just, just in case, right. Just in case something weird is going on. I mean, if I had started playing Negrande and he's busting out 17 bet sizes in perfect precision, theoretical frequencies, I mean, I might have to see what's going on at, at, at DNX HQ, you know, that would be a bit strange. You'd be, whoa, well, this is, this is, that would be, you know, some scary stuff, but obviously that didn't happen. And, and of course, uh, I, I, I have, you know, I never checked the cameras, but I 100% guarantee you it was Negrande on the other side. The point is, I think that the threat of, of technology being used in real time against players will just continue to accelerate. It's going to get more and more scary. And I think the long run, the, the answer to that is probably going to be to be playing more live poker. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. On, on, on the multi-way stuff, just uh, the, the example I always use when I'm asked to explain this, why <clears throat> GTO tends to break down multi-ways. At the start of my career, I... Uh, I, I concentrated on six-man sit-and-goes, and they paid two people. And it, it, it wasn't unusual to get to the um, the bubble. You know, there's three people left, two paid, um, and sacks are re relatively equal. And the question was, always was, should you loosen up your ranges at that point, or should you tighten up? And uh, the solution was fairly simple. If the other two guys were playing very loose, uh, then you should just play it tight. Um, and then nine times out of ten, you're getting heads up, and you're essentially free-rolling on the additional equity of the win. On the other hand, if they're both playing too tight, you should you should loosen up and take advantage of that. The issue comes if one of them is playing loose and one of them is playing tight. Then you're either going to be one of the two tight guys getting exploited by the loose guy, or you're one of the two loose guys getting exploited by the tight guy. With with the solvers, as I understand it, the multi-way solvers, they always have to make sort of abstractions and simplifications in multi-way situations. And uh, coming on, I, I, I definitely agree with you that cash games are going to have the longest term problems. And I think that's why the sites are focusing more on tournaments and new formats and stuff like PKOs, where there's this additional element that, which sort of removes it from the solver. One thing I'm curious about is like, you've spoken about your desire to ride off into the sunset now and, and, and <laughs> not have to play poker again. What, why do you think you have fallen out of love with poker? Is it the paradigm shift that it just, it's so all consuming now, you literally have to put in so much time with the solvers or is it just that, you know, you, you've played as much poker as any man should in, in one lifetime? <laughs> I think there's a, just a healthy amount of both of those going on. I, I, you know, it's the number one reason is how it makes me feel. And I know that's a very emotional response in a game of logic and, uh, and analytics and, and statistics and frequencies. But uh, when I play poker, I don't, I don't feel happy. Uh, and, and that's just, that just doesn't go away when you don't like poker. It's very tough. I think for people that, that enjoy the game to understand that. Uh, and, and I think that there's a variety of reasons at play behind it. I really dislike the way that poker has gone in terms of using these tools to, to improve. I, I think it's really taken a lot of the creativity and fun out of the game. And I also think that there's some element of, you know, just my personality. I tend to just get really obsessed with things and then uh, I'm kind of all or nothing. And with poker, when I would play and I wouldn't have studied in a while or I'm not using these tools, then I think, oh man, I just suck. You know, I, I'm just so bad at this. And, and, and I just, that's just not fun for me. I, I, 
if I'm bad at something, I either keep doing it and try to improve um, extremely aggressively, or I don't really do it. And so, you know, your options are spend countless hours deep in the lab grinding out sims or or not play and uh i don't enjoy sims and i don't enjoy playing so it's, it's kind of a no-brainer for me i i'm not saying that i will never play poker again and i also hate that i've sort of become that guy you know that guy in poker guys i'm totally done for reals and, and then everyone <laughs> says yeah 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 no no i'm being serial guys and then and then before you know it you're playing at 25,000 hands we're standing on the grande and everyone's thinking, oh, yeah, nice retirement, Doug, nice retirement. Uh, but I, I really just cannot see playing poker uh, anything outside of super casually moving forward. And, uh, you know, I guess I guess we'll see over time. Maybe down the road I feel differently. I don't know. But for the time being, that's, that's my plan. One of the things I do want to bring it back maybe to the, to the challenge here as well. One of the things you said was that you were sort of keen, maybe carrying the mantle of the poker fraternity and wanted to sort of bring some respect back into the heads up streets uh, when heads up specialist Olivier Bousquet came on the chip race just a few months ago uh, around the start of the challenge I think it was roughly he said and I quote there are levels to this thing um, as you said many times particularly after the halfway mark Daniel improved substantially there's no question over the course of the match but he still didn't get close to you and that's kind of the fucking point um olivia said that his standard at the start because he played both of you of course was that of a 2-5 regular whereas and he played you as well and i think he said you were much more like you know one of the 100 200 regs and uh, and you know I, I think it's probably fair to say that daniel with all his improvement is maybe a 10-20 reg a very good winning 10-20 reg these days maybe you would appraise him higher that's no mean achievement but he's not and he probably never will be a top 10 heads up player. Um, given how your initial issues with Daniel arose out of how he sort of flippantly said, oh, I could be 25, 50, you know, six max or whatever it was. Do you feel like this challenge has taught him a lesson in how, again, to quote Olivier, there are fucking levels to this thing? I would think so. You know, when you, when you, prepare for something and you spend the time trying to learn and then you show up and play and you're doing your best and you're giving it your all, but you can't win. I think that that is humbling in, in its own way. Uh, just to clarify one thing that Olivier played me and Daniel recently. He said that he had played both of you before the match. Okay. Interesting. I didn't realize I'd played Olivier. So oh, that's, maybe uh, he that's was like, to me. Oh, that's interesting. You maybe he got to the show. You would have known Doug. <laughs> Which one? Which one? I'll have, to, I'll have to ask Olivier what, what account he was for some reads. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there was there was a bit of time to, to get to play both of us. We were both practicing. We were both on WSOPs, and I was also playing some on ACR. And so there were people that got to play both of us. And the general contentious from those people was sort of that, you know, my, my game was a lot tougher to deal with, I think, than, than Iranio's game. But it's... <laughs> it's just so tough for Daniel to, to try and go from, you know, you, you look even at the prep time, right? The moment the challenge was on, I was in the lab prepping. He was streaming tournaments in Mexico for a month <laughs> or something. I, you know, I, I mean, if you think about that month, if he had spent that prepping where he would have been otherwise, would he have been close by the end? I, I, I just can't really see him being super close. You know, could he get my win rate down to five or six? That seems that, potentially possible maybe but is he really going to cut it down to under five or even or a couple of big blinds i just i just don't think so because of how difficult that is to do and i think about all of the spots where 
I really, really learned and, and went deep and, and figured out. And, you know, I, I think a big thing for Negreanu as well is he, he had his team running a lot of sims and things, but he wasn't doing them himself. He was sort of, people were more preparing lessons, lesson plans and stuff, which is good. I, I had plenty of that as well. But, but then I also had a lot of hours of me uh, just running sims, changing the different subtrees and just cross-checking uh, EV values, different sizes and what ranges looked like in different spots. So uh, I think I think you kind of got to get your hands in there and, and really, really get deep in there yourself to understand things, to, to have an ability to cut it down. And, and there are levels to this game. You know, it's I think back to before the, the challenge started and I saw so many so much conversation. Oh, is four to one a good odds to bet on Daniel or not? And people are saying, well, let's just assume Daniel went, loses at three big blinds per hundred. Like, Motherfucker, do you realize how close that is? Do you realize how good three big blinds? There's no, there's, there's almost no chances of three big blinds per hundred situation. You know, I've played, I played a lot of heads up in my day. My win rate over my career was 10 and I played basically only top regs, you know? And it was 10 over big samples of playing all the, and that was risk top regs. This is this is someone that has playing tournaments in Mexico versus me, a, a, a player that's played heads up at the top level. So, yeah, I think some of those estimations were were just really silly uh, in retrospect. I think the EV big blind win rate ended up being nine point six. If that was true win rate, I would have won uh, this challenge six out of seven times, and I think uh, the odds were four out of five. So you would have made money even at the win rate I was at. But you also kind of have to factor in that my play would have been very my play was geared in a way to win more often. So my big line per hundred isn't pure, true big line per 100. And then uh, you also have to factor in that. Uh, I mean, we both, of course, thought we got unlucky. That's, I guess, the name, the nature of the beast. But I feel that I, I have a little bit of experience there, having seen a lot of heads up hands, kind of understanding how I'm running. And, you know, by the end, I think I think it was relatively fair. Obviously, he ran poorly in the all-ins. But uh, the, the bottom line is, even at the win rate I won at, I was plus EV, and I have a feeling that I would have been better than six out of seven anyway. Yeah, but um, it was interesting to me. I mean, the fact that Daniel agreed to play you in a heads up in the, in the first place was was kind of bizarre. But then thinking about it, like part of his brand has always been, well, poker is poker, and I'm good at all the formats, and I'm good at all the games, and I'm I'm able to take anything if I if I if I put my mind to it, which is kind of a weird idea that poker sometimes has that like if you're good in this game that almost nobody plays, and you have to be good at all the games. You know, like I came out of the athletics world, that idea isn't in athletics. Like nobody thinks decathletes are the best athletes because they're kind of good at all the stuff. Um, do you think Daniel was was genuinely naive uh, going into the challenge? It's really tough to say because we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Daniel's a, a good business guy. He he, I'm sure he's getting paid by either GG or whoever. I mean, I don't have any inside knowledge on that. I'm just assuming, right? I, he probably got his ducks in a row, figured out a way to to offset some some losses, and so you don't know was he offered a really sweet deal to do it or did he really think that he was just going to win? We're, we're just kind of speculating on that front. I do believe Daniel had a very Daniel thought he had a really good chance to win, or I don't think he would have taken this to begin with. Maybe he thought that, um, you know, we were even, he kind of, he, he, he made some comments in certain post games about this, you know, kind of being even ish or, or some, you know, he, he made some comments in that, in that vein. So maybe he thought, Hey, this is more like a flip than people realize and getting, you know, I'm going to get late odds on the side and I'm also going to get whatever sponsorship money if he was paid to do that. 
Uh, so maybe he just thought this is a win-win for him. He, he wins money on the side from, from businesses. And then he also uh, has a real chance to win. And then I also think that there was just some real fuck you legacy shit. If he had won this, <laughs> you know, I mean, he puts up with the years of trolling. He enters into the game that he's just supposed to lose at against someone that's really good uh, at, at that game type, historically one of the best players of the game type. If he wins, he wins in so many ways. He, he wins obviously money in the challenge. He wins in side bets. He wins in sponsorships. He wins in, um, you know, cementing his name as one of the best players ever. He, he, he wins in, in totally shutting, you know, my perspective down or shutting me up or whatever you're going to look at. He, he wins in, in, in defeating what has been his largest enemy online for some time. I mean, it would just be such an enormous victory in so many ways that I, maybe he just thought, you know what? Even if I'm 40% to win this or 35% to win this or whatever I, he truly thought, the the winning scenarios are just so good for him. And then there's, there's one last thing, too, which is, you know, he's going to have gotten way better at poker from this. Now, when he's playing a high roller and he's in a spot, his thought process is going to be much, much, much stronger. And I think, you know, I think about for myself after years and years and years of playing heads up and then moving over to playing live and playing tournaments, playing, I'm playing all those types of games. Um, and even some online cash games, uh, you know, my my abilities were so strong relative to the field just because I was so used to categorizing hands efficiently and and grouping them and um, pairing them into into even ratios of, of, of value to bluff and thinking about calling in terms of all my hands and removal. And uh, you, when once you get so sharp at those things, that will apply to everything you play. Daniel will be sharper in every game he plays from this. And then you think about how much poker the guy plays. Is it possible that he wins back more than 1.2 million in just being sharp at poker? Um, probably not in the next few years, but over time. Yeah. I mean, that, that'll eventually be money well spent from him. You know, maybe he could have gotten a cheaper lesson, but uh, I think, I think it, it, it's really going to make his game improve a lot as well. That's very generous of you. Finally, Doug, in TV show Breaking Bad, Walter White used to take on subtle characteristics of the people he murdered. Uh, you have said in the past that you absorb ideas from your opponents. Um, hell, you actually incorporated uh, some stuff from your 2015 AI opponent, Claudico, whose name comes from the Latin I limp. Um, is, is, there any, is there anything that you think you will take away from Daniel's game and absorb into your own whether you play very often or not. So let me think about this. What what did Daniel do? Well, I think one of the things that Daniel did a, a pretty good job of that I don't have enough of in my game is do at pot check raise spots. Uh, I think he did a really nice job of uh, working in some flop and turn check raises and spots that I may, might might have been too low frequency. Uh, I, I think honestly that that part of my game is one of my weakest is is the pot uh, balancing check raise versus check call. Uh, I think he did a nice job of trying to, to deny some of my bluffs in, in those situations. So that, that would definitely be a place that I would be looking to, to work on and, and improve in the future. Uh, I think, I think uh, most of the spots though, I think that Daniel just used either the same strategy as me or one that I think is, is pretty clearly worse. So it would be hard to take away too many things from those, from those spots. Also, it's a little different now, right? Because when I when I originally said that I, I used to play like that, it was absolutely the case. But it was because we didn't know what was correct was. Uh, we were all guessing. So I'd play someone and they'd make a make a play, and I think, wow, that's really cool. There was no way for me to check if that was correct or not. It was just I had to think about it myself. Does this make sense? So a lot of the things that I would implement were me thinking about the way my opponents played, thinking about does it make sense, and then trying to implement that strategy. Whereas nowadays, if you do something, I think, oh, that's really cool. I can look it up, and if it's wrong, it's just wrong. 
You know, it's not it's not. Oh, wow. This is just blowing my mind. It's so interesting and fascinating the way that. Oh, it's just negative EV. <laughs> you know, it's not <laughs> it's not it's not quite the same. So I, I think uh, that aspect of your game, uh, the aspect of picking out things you like from opponents and putting them into your game. While it can still play a role, I think once you get to a certain point where you've studied all of this, this stuff enough, I, I don't think you're going to be doing that all too often. So, so not the bougie bluffs then. I, I'm still interested in which hands in which hands he's talking about. There was uh, there was one hand where I had uh, the straight. It was a board something something like I'm just just estimating here seven uh, jack seven four jack seven six three six four do six four three so a five made a straight and he bet the river and i raised with a straight and then he jammed with just a seven um maybe that's one of the types of spots he's saying uh which i thought was a little loose you should not be doing that play very often I mean, it makes sense to use a seven but non-paired sevens there are, are a bit wide uh to be buffing that spot and then additionally usually the solver plays that spot by bluffing with five x to get people off chops and then and then working on seven five as well versus just using the pure air ball but it will sometimes use pure air balls it's not it's not a terrible play as long as it's super low frequency um but yeah there were some spots maybe like that that he's thinking about that uh you know, I don't know what he had in all of these spots, so it's hard for me to say did he get me or not. If he did these a lot, then then maybe he maybe he got some bluffs through. I mean, you know, you play a twenty five thousand hand challenge, you're gonna get some fucking bluffs through. That's just the <laughs> you know, that's just the you're gonna get caught too. You know, that's just the reality of the situation. Uh, I'd be interested to see which hand specifically he's talking about with those. Yeah, in fairness, having worked a little bit with solvers and mostly uh, vicariously through Dara, the, the solver can be quite bougie itself from time to time. So that's that's uh, fair enough. Doug, congratulations sincerely once again. A phenomenal effort. And uh, we're so happy to have you here on the Chip Race. I'm delighted to announce now for our audience that this will not be your only appearance on a Chip Race show. You have very kindly agreed to come back on our uh, 100th episode to headline which we really look forward to that will be a broader interview looking at your career across the board it won't all be daniel challenge stuff don't worry guys we want to talk doug is much more three-dimensional than just that um daryl carney thank you so much for all of your contributions on this episode of lock in until we chat again doug poker thank doug poke thank you so much thank you for having me did you call I almost called you Doug Poker. Did you see that? Yeah, it's just, that's fine. It's always there in the back of my mind. It wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> <laughs>